Amen. You may be seated. So if you have your uh, Bible today, hope you do, you turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm 120 and 121. It's also printed there if you need it on page 8 in your bulletin. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, he, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree? Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak... Therefore, war. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Move in our hearts now by the Spirit, our Father, we pray as we hear in Jesus' good name. Amen. So I've said to you before that reading through the book of Psalms is a little bit like walking through a kind of a giant literary cathedral. And you have these five distinct chambers, what we call the five books of the Psalter, each one of these chambers, each one of these books is exquisitely arranged, and you walk through it and you just see all kinds of glory, God's glory. You also see a lot of the rawness of human experience and human emotion, which is wonderful. And when you get to that fifth chamber, you get to the middle of that fifth book, we run across what Eugene Peterson calls an old dog-eared songbook. On Amazon, this thing would be marked well-used. It is stained, it is tattered, it has been thumbed through a zillion times, 15 little psalms, all but one of them very short, and they are bound together under a single title, Songs of Ascent, Songs for Going Up. Well, going up where? You might remember that in Israel's founding charter, what we call the Torah, uh, Israel received a calendar of three annual feasts. So there was one that was right before grain harvest in the spring. And then roughly two months later, um, at the end of grain harvest, there was another feast. And then about four or five months later, after all of the harvest had been stored, there was yet another feast. And on these three occasions, Israel was told, you guys need to go up to God's house. You need to celebrate in various ways. Well, in the early history of uh, Israel's early history in the land, for, for a variety of reasons we won't go into now, there was no single central place where God's ark settled. You guys remember the ark? I mean, surely you Harrison Ford fans know the ark of the covenant, right? Uh, you know, there's this box and you had these cherubim angels that kind of stretched their wings over it and underneath those wings, God's glory cloud would settle. 
and that was where God's glory kind of lived on earth. Well, that ark was not in any one single place for a, quite a long time. And in fact, sometimes it kind of just vanished. No one knew where it was. But when David became king, the shepherd boy David eventually became king, and he established a royal city called Jerusalem. And very, very early on, David, uh, with a quite embarrassing display of joyful dancing in front of this thing, he brought the ark into the royal city because he knew he, he was not really the high king. He was just a, God's servant. The high king was God, and God, the high king, this is now in Jerusalem, the royal city. It is, this is now where God is going to set his earthly throne. So now let the pilgrimages begin, right? And this tattered songbook reflects the, um, the pilgrim's journey of the soul, we could say. So their feet are walking a road to Jerusalem, but there's this journey of the soul. They are thinking about and meditating on and kind of opening their hearts to certain things. And so not only are their feet going up to Jerusalem, but their hearts, their souls are going up from their everyday lives, which are perfectly, you know, there's lots of good stuff going on in their everyday lives, but their hearts and their feet are going up to the city of the great king, God himself. It's also interesting that there are songs in this collection from a much, much later time in Israel's history, history uh, a time when pilgrims of a very different sort made their way back from exile in Babylon to God's city. A very dark time, but they were coming home now, and they, some of these songs were written on that pilgrimage. Now, all that, I'm sure I'm saying you know, that to you, and it's you know, maybe mildly interesting, but like it seems very, very remote from our lives, right? This is very long ago, very far away. So the question is, why do we need to hear and to sing these songs um, now? And what I want to suggest to you in this little series is that while you and I do not walk the roads that these pilgrims did, our feet are not on the same roads, their songs actually offer us an itinerary for our souls. An itinerary, a kind of directed path by which you and I can go up in our hearts toward God from our everyday lives, which God's called us to live, but there are times when we need to take our hearts and go up to God out of our everyday lives. We need to, sometimes it's more like the exile, we need to go up in our hearts toward God because there's a bunch of earthly stuff going on, earthly events in our world that make it seem like God is not ruling and reigning. Maybe God has sort of slipped off the throne, you know, the exile surely would have made Israel feel that, and we need to go up toward God in our hearts, and these, these songs offer an itinerary for that. Now, I must say, you probably can relate to this, in our personal lives as we deal with hard things, and in our cultural moment, which is very confusing, I think, in many ways, I think I'd rather have a map. I don't really love God giving me an itinerary, I'd rather God give me a map. Because in history, you know, there are a lot of itineraries. You said to people, go here, turn right, go there, walk down that road, and eventually you'll get to X. And at some point, as all these itineraries were being proliferated, they decided to make some maps. And they collected all the itineraries, and now you had this nice map that had all the itineraries on it, all the directions. And so now, the great thing about a map is, you can decide for yourself where you want to go and how you're going to get there. That's the advantage of a map. I appreciate my friend Alistair Roberts pointing this out. And I want God sometimes to give me a map. I want to know God's big plan for Ben Miller. I want to know kind of God's big plan for 2024, which is now coming quickly. 
I just want God to give me a map and then I can figure out where to go and how to get there according to my specifications. And very often what you and I find is God's not gonna give us a map. He's gonna make us be content with a God-given path, an itinerary for our souls to follow. An example of this would be when God says in Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and his peace will keep your heart. That's an itinerary. It's not a map. It's an itinerary. And these songs are an itinerary. And we're going to start our journey where every pilgrim starts. Every pilgrim starts where they actually live in the real world. And that's Psalm 120. I want to talk today about where pilgrims live and in Psalm 121, where pilgrims look. We'll start with where pilgrims live in Psalm 120. So in Psalm 120, the psalmist is looking around at the world where he lives. And what's interesting is you notice right away he is distressed. In my distress, I called to the Lord. He is not happy <laughs> as he looks around at his world. So what's distressing him? It's not practical problems. I mean, I'm sure he had practical problems. What distresses this guy is people. Because as you read on in the psalm, he says, I am living surrounded by people whose lives are driven by two things. Their lives are driven by lies and by war. They're under the influence of a lying tongue, and they are so warlike. I want peace. They just want war. Now, I can imagine somebody in 2023, oh, isn't he being judgy? Doesn't Jesus say judge not? I mean, please, have you never, <laughs> have you never noticed as you look around at people in your life that a lot of people believe and say stuff that is just false? You've never noticed that? You never look around and like, man, people just believe and say a lot of stuff that's just wrong. And you've never looked around at people in your life and been like, you know, these people are really hard to live with. They're just difficult. It's so contentious. You've never, you never experienced that? Well, the psalmist does. And I, I think also in fairness to, to the psalmist, we, we should notice that he clearly has something much more in view than just kind of sour local neighbor relations. He's not like, ah, oh, you know, Sylvester down the street is just like, Ugh. it's not like some particular local person that he's frustrated with. Because as you read on, and, and he kind of expands on this, you, he, 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 he talks about this lying tongue, but you do notice the lying tongue is never specified. It's not like, well, you know, I was in this business relationship with this guy and he cheated me. The lying tongue is never specified. We're just, there's just this kind of general lying tongue that bothers him. And as you move on to his warlike neighbors in Meshach and Kedar, this is really kind of crazy because these aren't even really neighbors. Do you guys know where Meshach is? So if you're in the land of Israel on the uh, east end of the Mediterranean Sea, I mean, if you're going to talk about your neighbors, maybe you're talking about the Egyptians to the south or the Edomites over across the Jordan or maybe the Philistines on the west or maybe the Syrians in the north, but you, Meshach, do you know where Meshach is? It is all the way in the northwesternmost steps of what we now call Turkey. And Kedar is way out in the southeastern deserts of Arabia. And so he's like, I'm in the middle of this enormous circuit. It's almost like he wants to describe the widest possible circle of heathen peoples, people who don't, people don't know God, and they, they're just warlike. So you have this unspecified lying tongue, and you have this very far-flung heathen warlike people. And if, if you are a historically conscious 
people like the Israelites. I mean, we Americans know nothing about being historically conscious, but the Israelites knew their story very well, and if they, they knew their Bible very well. And if they're listening to this, who do you think, what do you think they're thinking of when they hear about a lying tongue and murderous neighbors? There are obviously echoes here of their very earliest scriptures in early Genesis because it will be Jesus who later tells us who is the father of lies. That serpent. And who is the father of all heathen war makers? Is it not Cain? The oldest son of Adam and Eve who hated his righteous brother and killed him and went to war with him. That would have been echoing in the minds of an Israelite hearing this psalm. And recall that Genesis context, because you remember the lie, the lie, capital T, capital L, this is the lie. It, it spawned every other evil that we experience under the sun. It deserves that fiery curse that the psalmist calls down on this deceitful tongue in verse 4. May sharp arrows be visited on you with glowing coals. That lie, that damnable lie, was the lie of self-sufficiency. It was the lie that Satan told our first parents that you guys can resource and run your lives without God. That was the lie. It was a spiritually energized lie. It was calculated to undermine confidence in God. You don't need to trust God. You can resource yourselves. It was calculated to undermine obedience to God. You don't need to obey God. You can rule your own life. And the thing about lies, unlike, you know, swords and spears, is that lies aren't just external to us. Lies have this ability to get inside of our heads, and all of a sudden you find, you know what? This thing has its hooks inside of me. It's becoming how I think. It is enslaving me from the inside. It is blinding me from the inside. That was the lie that spawned all the evils in, in the world, and under the spell of that lie, if we are going to resource and rule ourselves, guess what that does for our social lives? It immediately creates an endless competition for resources. Because if you're gonna resource you and I'm gonna resource me, there are only so many resources in the world and now we're fighting over the resources. And we have an endless clash of wills too, because if you're gonna rule your life and I'm gonna rule my life, what happens when the way you run your life clashes with how I wanna run my life? And now we have a battle of wills. We have war. And the psalmist says, I'm just, I'm tired. I'm tired of living in this world. There is a world weariness in this psalm. But what I wanna to suggest to you is that it is a healthy world weariness. The first step in spiritual formation the first step in the itinerary of pilgrimage toward God is you need to feel some distress. There needs to be a sense of being spiritually distressed by the lies of the age. If you got none of that, you're not ready to go to God. There needs to be a sense of, sense of being socially distressed by, by warlikeness and all of the vices that come with warlikeness. That should weary you. It should bother you. What is really worrisome in God's people is when they're just kind of chilling with the world as it is. They, they're pretty comfortable with the lies. They're, they're really, they're, they play the war games right along with the best of them. They're just kind of at home in all of this. And this psalmist's distress is good distress. It is discomfort with sin. And that discomfort with sin 
will impel you toward God and toward renewal with God. It is no accident that Eugene Peterson calls, titles this psalm a psalm of repentance. And you know, brothers and sisters, I don't need to tell you, you know it well, that is, all this is absolutely still true today. We live in a world in 2023, you know, we think we're so sophisticated. We live in a world today that is absolutely full of conflict, do we not? I mean, you think about the military things that are going on right now in our moment. You think about the political war-likeness. We have to endure yet another year of another election year full of the moronic saber-rattling. You think about the war-likeness of the online world, the kind of just really nightmarish stuff that a lot of young people experience as friendships are so fragile online and often it just devolves into outright bullying. We live in a very conflicted, warlike world as much as they did in the psalmist's time. And why is our world that way? Because the hearts of human beings are in the grip of the lie. We are our own. There is nothing more paradigmatically 21st century North American than that sentiment. We are our own. That's why the world is full of the conflicts as it is. And that lie of self-sufficiency, we are our own. In our time, it has so many different guises. You can hear it in all kinds of, it wears different clothes. You know, like one guise is the idea that if you strip away all of the delusions and the fantasies and you get really sensible and scientific and sophisticated, you will realize, as any enlightened person does, there is no God. That is a lie the lie that your heart can be trusted. Do you know why you should not follow your heart? Because your heart cannot be trusted. It is a lie that your heart can be trusted. You are not your own. The lie that your feelings can be trusted. No, they can't. That's a lie. The lie that any authority other than your deepest feelings is an oppressor. That's a lie. You're not your own. The lie that identity is something you construct rather than something that you receive. That's a lie. The lie that freedom is having no constraints rather than freedom being fulfilling my purpose. That's a lie. That I'd be really free if I had no constraints. That is a lie. You're not your own. The lie that having more makes you happier. I mean, we've tried this ad nauseum. It does not make you happier. That's a lie. You're not your own. The lie that the world is neatly divided between those who are stuck in a stupid, bigoted, oppressive past and those who are willing to build a smart, inclusive, liberated future. That is the kind of lie that people tell themselves when they think they are their own. It is a lie. The lie that people should be valued on the basis of whether they make my life better. That's a lie. You're not your own. The lie that caring for the poor and advocating for the oppressed is optional. That is a lie. You're not your own. The lie that worlds flickering on screens are better than the world that God made for our bodies. That is a lie. It is destroying people. And we believe it, but we're not our own. And for God's people living in a world that is trying so hard to be godless, with all of man's inhumanity to man, that results from that. Living in a world like that is uncomfortable. It is distressing. It ought to be. It's a good thing if we feel distress. 
Can I ask you guys a really hard question, you parents? Can I ask you a hard question as your pastor? What are you doing so your kids feel that distress? What are you doing so your kids feel that distress? Where they know and love the truth so much that they, they're around lies and it bothers them. They're around the kind of life, the warlikeness that flows from believing lies and it troubles them. Are you taking your kids with you on pilgrimages of the soul toward God so they come to love Zion and love the God of Zion and they come to really get tired of Meshach and Kedar? Because I will tell you this, if you are not on those pilgrimage with, pilgrimages with your kids, they are already being seduced. It is not that they may be seduced, they are already being seduced. I read this week from an economist, of all people, some frightening statistics about children staying in the faith. Listen to what he says. Loss of religion is about childhood socialization. This is an economist, not a pastor. Loss of religion is about childhood socialization. School environments that prioritize career and never present religious vocation as an option. Neighborhoods where churches are zoned out. Churches preaching more political sermons than about the challenges of family and adolescence. The explosion of youth pornography usage. Social media connecting young children to the social worlds of older children in a totally unsupervised platform, and so on. The reality is that the last 30 years have seen a dramatic diminution of parental influence in general as kids spend more of their life in childcare settings, at school, and online. And then this sentence, for parents to keep their kids in the faith, they must recapture their influence. You must be on pilgrimage to Zion with your children. Journeys of the soul toward God, because you will lose them if you do not. I am stunned by how naive parents can be about this. Sometimes I think Christian parents don't care, which shocks me. Shield children, says this economist, from schooling environments that relegate faith to a second-class topic. Deny access to unsupervised online communities and pornography. And, most crucially, have daily parent-led activities centered on family solidarity around shared faith. I'd say that's the absolute number one thing of Christian parenting in our time. Daily parent-led activities centered on family solidarity. We are God's people, built around shared faith. Families that do these things, this is statistically undeniable. Families that do these things still have extremely high rates of successful religious transmission. Families who trust that children will pick it up along the way fail to transmit their religious beliefs and suddenly find to their great surprise that their 20-something children categorically reject their faith. I've watched this happen in whole churches. Beloved, may it never be said here at Trinity. Amen? We are God's people, from the least to the greatest, because we're on pilgrimage design, and there's an uncomfortableness with Meshach and Kedar. But lest our sense of distress lead to cynicism, which it easily could, lead to anxiety, which it easily could, lead to despair even, the second step in pilgrimage is crucial. Because notice where pilgrims look. So you're in, you know, you're, you're surrounded by Meshach and Kedar, and sometimes you're like, oh, wow, you lying tongue. But notice where pilgrims look. Not to Jerusalem. This really struck me, because the, the, the songs of ascent are going to Jerusalem, and I would have expected I lift up my eyes to Jerusalem. That is not where the eyes of the pilgrims are lifted first. 
They're lifted to the hills where Jerusalem is, and the hills point up, 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 and they point to no one less than the maker of heaven and earth. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I'd just like you all to let that sink in for a second. As you trudge through a world where there are thorns and there are thistles and there are lies and there is war, where does your help come from? It comes from the maker of heaven and earth. John Webster says he is the one who brings life out of nothing. He is the Lord, the giver of life. And that means that he is not powerless against our afflictions in the way that we are. He does not suffer from our distresses. He is not overwhelmed by what masters us. He is the Lord, the one whose power is infinite. And because he is such, and because he turns to us in our need and helps us, we are indeed helped. We do not stand isolated, but we are in the hands of Almighty God. That Lord is your keeper. Six times in this psalm, the Lord keeps you. The Lord keeps Israel. He is your keeper. He will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in. What do you say, as I had to recently, to a young person who experienced a very traumatic late-night encounter with a creep? One of those disturbing moments when you meet someone and you realize there are evil people in this world. You can feel the evil, and they were shaken by the trauma of this experience. What do you say to such a person? What do you say to an older person, as I had to recently, going through an absolutely relentless series of hardships, like the kind of hardships that break you down and injustice is mingled in with those hardships. What do you say to such people? This psalm is so important because if the hellscape of Meshach and Kedar began with the lie of self-sufficiency, how do you end up in a world that looks like Meshach and Kedar? You begin with the lie that we're able to resource and rule ourselves. That is the lie that began at all. Well, this pilgrimage starts in exactly the opposite place. It begins with total self entrustment. I am not and I cannot be my own keeper. The Lord is my keeper. And you notice the psalm says this Lord is everything that you and I can never ever be. He is the tireless keeper. He will not doze off. Anybody in this world who keeps you will eventually doze. The Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is the tireless keeper. He is the all-powerful keeper. He can block the sun. I spent a few days in the Mediterranean this summer. That sun can kill you if you're exposed in bad ways. But this almighty one who keeps you can block the devastating effect of the sun and the power of the moon. He is the thorough keeper. He will keep you from all evil. He is the everywhere keeper. He will guard your going out. He will guard your coming in. Wherever you are, the psalmist says, if I go to the ends of the earth, still your hand will keep me. He is the for all time keeper from this moment now and forevermore. There will never be a time when he steps off duty. He is the for all time keeper. And the psalmist says he is not just your personal keeper. He is the keeper of Israel, the keeper of his people. He is the keeper of this whole unfolding kingdom of his on the earth. He kept Israel until Messiah. He kept the church in its infancy. He still keeps Trinity Church and all the people of God in 2023. He is our keeper. And you know why that doesn't sink in sometimes? You know very well why it doesn't sink in. 
because it doesn't feel like it. I can stand here and say to you, the Lord is your keeper, and right now you have immediately come to mind reasons why that cannot be really, that can't really be all that meaningful because it sure doesn't feel like it. Can I ask you something? Do you think it felt like God was Jesus' keeper during his trial? Do you think it felt like God was Jesus' keeper when he was hanging, bleeding out on a Roman cross? You think anyone should have said to Jesus at that point, go with your feelings about whether God is your keeper? Was God his keeper? Beloved, death itself was powerless to hold Christ, powerless to keep him under its grip because he was kept by the power of God. And that God who kept Christ in the, in, the, in, the, in the depth of death and hell, that God is keeping you. He is keeping you right now from all evil. You will never say, when God has finished keeping you after your life in this world, you will never ever say that any evil ever broke through his hand and actually got to you. You'll never say it. Even at your most wounded, you will say, he kept the evil from me. It only did me good in the end. It was only used by his hand to bring blessing. The question is never, is God keeping me? The only question is whether I am trusting that he's keeping me. And beloved saints, if you cannot trust this maker of heaven and earth to keep you, then who are you going to trust? You? Eugene Peterson says this, he says, the only serious mistake we can make this is quite a statement. The only serious mistake we can make when illness comes, when anxiety threatens, when conflict disturbs our relationships with others, the only serious mistake we can make is to conclude that God has gotten bored looking after us and has shifted his attention to a more, more exciting Christian or that God has become disgusted with our meandering obedience and decided to let us fend for ourselves for a while or that God has gotten too busy fulfilling prophecy in the Middle East to take time now to sort out the complicated mess we've gotten ourselves into. That is the only serious mistake we can make. It is the mistake that Psalm 121 prevents, the mistake of supposing that God's interest in us waxes and wanes in response to our spiritual temperature. The God of Genesis 1, who brought light out of darkness, is also the God of this day, who guards you from every evil. That is the truth. We live in a time, as you know, where anxiety and depression have never been more rampant. The statistics right now on teen mental health take my breath away. And I've thought and thought and thought and thought and thought and thought and thought about what can be done, and I've come to believe the only actual healing for all of that, whether you are young or old, it is to come to a place through pilgrimages of the soul where you can say with confidence, I am being kept by the power of God. That will heal you. If you do not know that you are very, very, very small and that God is absolutely sovereign and he is absolutely trustworthy, can I say something to you? If you do not know that, that you are a vapor and God 
is sovereign and he is good and he is trustworthy. If you do not know that, you will never be emotionally healthy. Do you know why you'll never be emotionally healthy? Because you will spend your life constantly trying to keep yourself and keep other people in ways that only God can. And it will drive you crazy. And it will cripple you from being able to do the mighty works which are possible by faith alone. This is where we live. This is where we look. And now, Lord our God, maker of heaven and earth, be our keeper. Be our shade on our right hand, according to your promises to us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.